listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Happy Thursday, Canada coast to coast to coast. Welcome to the big show on a Thursday. What I want to do today uh, with uh, Chris and Nick and Sam, the whole community here, what we want to do today is mostly hear from you. Yesterday we had so many great callers. In fact, one of my colleagues from CTV texted me and said, we got to get a guest on to talk about finances. I haven't had this great guest on. And it was, it was a caller. One of our callers, Don, was so good that I literally had colleagues saying, we should book that same guy on finance. And it was just one, it was a caller. That's how much we love the calls. So we're going to do lots of calls today, and we're going to debate lots of things, and I'll get into it. But we will get, sometimes we need a little expertise after Ontario announced that you don't have to, if you get Omicron, you don't have to um, isolate anymore. Huh. Okay. I mean, you got Western Ontario saying, you know, everyone's paranoid. It's going to be a terrible thing and blah, 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 blah. And then the uh, province comes out and and they say, no, 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 no. Um, There's no need for the five-day isolation. So we'll get a Dr. Labos on uh, to, to tell us if that's a good thing or not. One thing I've learned in this whole pandemic business Let's make sure we talk to some people who actually studied medicine instead of just watched YouTube. If, as it is popular to say, we want to practice medical science, not political science, and let me dig into that, then let's first get the medical science. But all, you know, you know, we don't elect doctors to run our society. We elect politicians. So everything has a political element to it. Governments who want to keep people safe can't just say, well, a doctor said that, because doctors don't consider the whole public good. They have a medical view of it. I appreciate that. But it's got to be filtered through the civilian elected officials. The same way that we don't have our military decision, well, the general said that. I guess if you're not a general, let the military run it. No, the military reports to the civilian elected officials, and so do the medical doctors. So while it's been stylish, for governments throughout the pandemic to say, well, we're just following the best medical advice. I appreciate that. You should be guided by the best factual medical advice, but nonetheless, the accountability falls on you. The decisions fall on you and the application of the advice falls on the accountable elected officials. And that's why I want to start the program today. Because one of the consequences of the two-year-plus pandemic has not just been about health, that's one, not just been about governments protecting the health of the collective citizens and to do so infringing on our civil liberties to a certain extent. This is the oldest balance in any democracy where governments say, look, um, there's a balance between freedom and security. It happens, for example, after 9-11, we all realize, you know what? So to assure me that there's no terrorist on a plane, I'm, I, I, I will go through an x-ray machine or I won't put, you know, I won't carry my pocket knife on air on, on, on an airline. And we swapped some of our conveniences or, on a more serious note, our freedoms. And the state 
crept up and decided that they needed more power to protect us. And we had the anti-terrorism laws, but they had a sunset clause because we as individual free citizens and taxpayers and members of a robust democracy should never and must never give up our civil liberties in the name of security without prudent transparency and a review moment. So you should never permanently give these things up unless they're reviewed periodically. Why not? Maybe the security threat has passed and we don't need to do that. Those things happen. The threat to us in the Second World War or post 9-11 may be different than today. Now, you can have threats from external terrorists. You can have threats from a pandemic. And government's first job, as I always say, is security. And the second job is prosperity. And keep, but they, they can't creep in. Now, there is a point when governments think, we just need to protect you from everything. Because security is our number one job. And then this is the problem on the progressive left side. How much should the government do? And this goes back to a legitimate debate about how big is government and what's government role. Is the government so big that it becomes the quote-unquote nanny state? Or is it so small that it actually lets marginal and, and vulnerable pop parts of our population down? So not health care, or they don't get a good enough education, or and it's just sort of everyone for themselves. But there's some balance there, and Canada has some kind of consensual balance between the left and right. But that's up for debate. But one of the consequences of the pandemic, and it's a real one, is people are tired of getting their freedoms infringed upon. They, they, you know, wearing a mask, going in restaurants, slowing down, lining up for everything, government, government, government. And on that moment, government's got to be careful because I really believe we've got whole political movements that are running against government, running against science. Look at the United States as just a prime example. You've got elected officials there who are purveying successfully ridiculous anti-democratic conspiracy theories, anti-science. They doubt, they, they throw into question whether any institution, whether it's the FBI or a federal election or a scientist like Dr. Fauci, have any legitimacy. Everything's a corrupt, deep state, and they don't trust anything. And so f- compliance is really difficult. Acting together is difficult, especially in an emergency. So I do think there are times when the government needs to make sure they have enough trust that people will actually trust, but verify, skeptical, but not cynical, trust, but verify that there is good science being used. It doesn't mean we we are compliant sheep. We ask robust questions, there's check and balances, there's a robust opposition, there's questioning of the police, there's questioning of the scientists, but eventually we've got to act, we've got to do stuff, we've got to get it together and protect ourselves. Getting the pandemic medicines was one of them, the vaccines. But then a government can overreach and backfire. And today I want to get your point on this. For example... There's, there was word in the, after the Canadian Center of Substance Abuse and Addiction did two years of research and a 5,000-person pe- peer-reviewed study that alcohol in small quantities can be harmful, and they're suggesting there should be warning labels on alcohol. No, that may be true, 
They may have the data and I can go into it, but at this moment in time when government has already been so intrusive in our lives and asked us to do so much, now you've decided that you're going to put warning labels on alcohol? No. You know, when I'm parenting my kid, if I said, look, uh, you're going to university for the first year, you better eat right, you better make notes on all your classes, take notes, do your readings at night. Also, make sure you exercise. So go to the gym every day, get a good night's sleep. Don't drink too much. Don't stay out too much too late because then you won't be able to focus on your classes. They're like, shut up, dad, stop it. It's not that I'm going to listen to some of what you say. I'm going to listen to nothing because you're an overburdening, nitpicking person who doesn't trust me. And governments can be the same. Governments have to trust the individual citizen. This, it's not that maybe these warning labels don't have some medical legitimacy, but it is not the time to put warning labels on it. And that's not it. Today, the Ottawa's luxury tax on high-priced cars, planes, and boats comes into effect. Is this the time for a luxury tax? That's not the only thing. The sugar tax in Newfoundland and Labrador on sugary drinks takes effect today. And my question in this, in and of themselves, you may be able to defend all these. Well, the rich should pay. Well, sugary drinks cause health issues. Well, there's good medical evidence about alcohol. My point is, this is, in 2022, after the pandemic, the government should trust us more. It's getting too nanny-ish, and people will turn them off. But I want your point of view on this next, one 633 1010 Strong views, powerful opinions. The Evan Solomon Show continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I can't wait to hear the next hour with you. We are going to get into this. And I think this is significant. There's a small, there's particular issues, and then there's general ones. one 855 on the big show or 710 1-855-633-1010. Or 71010. Why am I giving you the numbers? Because today, in Newfoundland and Labrador, they are going to tax sugary drinks. Remember, we had the premier on. The province's sugar-sweetened beverage tax will add 20 cents per liter to the cost of soft drinks like fruit juices, iced teas, lemonades, energy drinks, fountain sodas. It's on. 20 cents a liter. Okay? That was part of their budget. Why? Because the doctor who is their premier, says healthier beverage choices have to be encouraged, and they have this whole program called Rethink Your Drink. Okay, we can get into that. They're going to bring in $9 bucks to help fund prenatal infant nutrition supplements. So that's where the money's going. And then on the same day, the federal liberals are bringing in their luxury tax on cars, boats, and planes. So for if you're rich enough to buy a car that is worth over a hundred grand or a boat worth more than 250 grand or a plane, you're going to go get an, an extra tax of 10 to 20 percent. They think they'll raise 163 million bucks per year on rich people buying wealthy cars. And then there's a, also a suggestion that maybe it's time to put warning labels on booze. After there was a study done by the Canadian Center of Substance Use and Addiction. 
that maybe, you know, booze can lead to cancer. And even what Health Canada says, even Health Canada that says, you know, men don't have more than three drinks a day or 15 drinks a week and women don't drink uh, two, two drinks a day or 10 a week. Even that's way too much and we need to have a warning label. My sense of all this is I can debate the merits of each of these. Is it worth it? Is there data to support it? My point is in 2022 in September, people are tired of government over getting in their face, over parenting. They're sick of it. They want, you want to trust the government? First, the government has to show that they trust you. We need to trust governments on many things, but government needs to trust us too. And whether these merit something or not, you know, is taxing the rich popular? Yes. Is it also a kind of, you know, for less than $200 million, are they going to start a, a class war? Probably. They already have marginal tax breaks or marginal tax rates that tax the rich at over 50%. Do they need that and as many pointed out, are you going to start taxing luxury watches and purses and RVs and 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 are you know are you punishing success? You've already they're already taxed at the highest rate. And what about sugary drinks? What else are you going to tax? One eight five five six three three ten ten or seven to ten. My point is this: Is this the time, or is this contributing to a sense that government's too in your face? That it's time for government to say, pick your frickin' battle, government. one 855 or 71010. Uh, Evan, unfortunately, all the government and health officials have lost all my confidence. The absolute refusal to acknowledge natural immunity. Yeah. You know, that I don't buy. Sorry. That's the kind of thing they may, you may not trust government, which is government's fault because they've got to win trust, but the doctors are right. You don't have, you know, the quote, natural immunity ain't going to help in a, in a global pandemic of COVID. And you can talk to the tens of thousands of people who have lost their lives because of COVID and the doctors and nurses who worked overtime. So sorry. Um, you know, I, I believe government should pick their battles and these are overreach battles at this moment, but I actually believe you're wrong on that. Ron in Guelph, what's up? And uh, they put it at 100000 for airplanes. Well, a tra- two-seat training airplane's worth well north of $180,000 U.S. So it's not even an equal tax as far as I'm concerned, which, which and we're trying to train new pilots that you're going to put an extra 10 to 20% cost on them just to get trained. I mean, it's, it's insane. I missed the I missed the first part of your call. You're saying okay, that a taxing well, on planes may make it actually well, harder to get pilots. Is that what you're saying? Well, a, a two seat training airplane is well is worth well north of hundred and eighty thousand dollars U.S. and the tax hits at a hundred thousand dollars. I mean, I, th- I think for pl- I think for planes, just for the record, I think the the tax hits for planes and oh, I thought it was two hundred and fifty thousand for planes. No, it's a hundred thousand, and and a four seat airplane, which is used for training a lot, is well, a new is worth well north of three hundred and sixty thousand U.S. These people have no idea of what they're talking about. Oh yeah, you. By the way, sorry, let, I'm gonna I'm gonna defer to you. You're right. Personal aircraft with sale prices of over a hundred thousand. It's boats over two hundred fifty thousand. You're right. Okay, good yeah, point. Which, and a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar boat is way more boat 
than a hundred thousand, two hundred, a hundred eighty thousand dollar airplane. That's all I'm going to say. It, it's it's not fair. It's not a fair tax. Well, I think I think you think so. First of all, Ron, I appreciate that, and it may have unanticipated consequences on the pilots, uh, but also. My question is, if you want to tax the rich, and the liberals did this when they got in, they raised the price on the 1%, the tax on the 1%, I get that. But now are we just going to nitpick? Oh, you have, an, you have a car over 100000 boom. Like, to me, what I worry about, there is a divide that's growing between the rich and poor. I worry about that. I worry about CEOs making 200 times what the average worker 50, 60 years ago is 50 times. Um, and so the growing gap uh, does cause instability. But governments should be careful, um, either A, punishing success, but B, starting class war. I think a, mar- a fair marginal tax rate where the richest are paying more is accepted by Canadians. But once you start taxing people over 50%, that's a psychological barrier. Like once you're paying half your salary back to the government, is that a pretty f- – that's fair. I'm not complaining about it. But once you get to, well, not – not 50, maybe 52, maybe 53, then you add on on everything you want to purchase. You tell me. Debbie, what's up? Hi. I, uh, I'm i really getting tired of this. I call it a nanny state that we're in right now where the government is making too many of our personal decisions, not giving us the freedom to do as we wish, as in Newfoundland there with the sugar and, and, and charging extra for pop and so forth. I do agree with possibly taxation on the wealthier parts of our society for the purposes of, you know, a, a revenue, like getting taxing them as a re- revenue source, as opposed to taxing everybody else to the degree that we're being taxed. Yeah, I, I, listen... My point here is similar to yours, and I really appreciate the call. Government's got to pick a battle like a parent's got to pick a battle, right? When you're parenting your kid, you don't, you don't say, you don't do a long list of things. So they finally say, shut up. You're such a, you're, you're, mom, dad, you're driving me crazy, right? What you got to do is pick your battles and build trust. Look, every bureaucrat's going to do a study on there's a mild danger for drinking a couple beer. Yes, maybe there is. Maybe drinking pop has a health consequence. It probably does. Maybe there should be a tax on that. But you got to put that in context with all the other thing government's doing. And when government starts getting in everybody's face all the time, you stop trusting the big picture. That's dangerous because a genuine threat like a pandemic comes and people are like, you know what? You already don't trust me. You're already in my face about everything. You already make me feel like crap. You already make me infantilized. I'm not listening to you anymore. And government's got to be careful about that because they are I think they're already crossed the line to a certain extent on many of these things. Now, this is hitting now. We've got the sugar tax in Newfoundland and Labrador. We've got the luxury tax nationally. We've got potential warnings on booze. Let me take a break, and um, we can do more on this. Don't worry. I, I've got Gary. I've got Daniel. I've got lots. one 855 or 7-10-10. I was going to ask, because I watched Serena Williams in the U.S. Open, the great, if she's the greatest athlete of all time, the GOAT. But I actually think, well, you could text me on that if you want. But I want to talk about his government just getting too big on these issues. And we'll dig into that.
time in your car doesn't have to be time wasted. Join the evolution of talk radio. This is The Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. You know, in comedy, they always say the secret to comedy is timing. That's the old joke when you say to someone, to ask me what the secret to comedy is. And they say, okay, uh, what's the secret to timing? Timing is everything. Politics is about timing. When to leave, when to act. The timing is important. Is this the right time for a tax on sugar? Newfoundland and Labrador says yes. They're taxing sugar drinks as of today. Not chocolate milk or yogurt drinks, but, you know, pop, soda pop. And they're going to say bring in that nine million bucks and, 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 and use it for prenatal infant nutrition. Meantime, the federal government's saying, well, if you're really rich, you can afford to pay more. So if you can buy a $100,000 plane or or a car or a $250,000 boat, you got to pay 10 or 20% more tax on that. But if you're buying an RV, no. And if you're buying a Rolex watch, no. And if you're buying other luxury items, but these luxury items we're going to ding you on. And then there's like, oh, what about alcohol? There's a new study out that we should put warning labels on it. Again, we can, and if you want to call me to debate the merits of each of these, in and of themselves, there may well be health or social merit to it. There's usually science behind it. There's probably a decent justification to cut down on soda pop or cut down on alcohol or to make sure that we cut down the disparity between the rich and the poor. Sure. Can I make an argument for it? You better believe it. There's science. There's data. There's probably social benefits. But what about the social harms of government trying to control every minute bit of your life in the wake of a pandemic when they took away our civil liberties for security. I was okay with that in a global pandemic. There was science to back it. But is this the time to get in our face with other things or trust us to, we can handle our booze. Thank you very much. There's enough tax on that. There's enough warning on that. We don't need that. You know what? On the, on the Coke, trust us to handle our soda pop. We're big boys and girls here. We can handle it. Don't do that right now. You may have good reason to do it in any state, but don't do it. Because in the end, you're going to create cynicism. And then when we need to listen to you on something actually urgent and consequential, you'll lose trust. I think they're overreaching at, a, at the wrong time. But my phone call at one 633 and 7 to 10 is blowing up. Uh, let, let's go quick. Gary, you go. Um, so we're talking about taxing the rich, but you can't tax people who don't technically have a job if we're talking income tax, because these people, if you ever listen, I read a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and there is an economic divide. But the, the tax laws are written so we can all prosper if you're willing to take those risks. But you, you can't tax somebody who doesn't have a job. Right, these people who are wealthy own businesses, they own real estate. They use debt, which cannot be taxed, to further their their prospering. 
Well, no, I mean, I mean, let, let, let me be clear. Uh, they have income from all their assets. There, there's taxable uh, income on their assets. All that is taxable. The highest marginal tax rate in Canada is 33%. So after $216,000 uh, over that, then you're basically, with, with federal and combined uh, tax rates, you're basically in, like, if in, you're in Nova Scotia, you're paying 54% tax on that. And even if you're not, quote, getting a, a paycheck, if you're getting making any money from your investments, that's taxable income. From from investments that wasn't put through debt. Yes, you're right. But the problem is, is that what these people have, who are generally rich have worked their butt off to get there. Most people think it was just handed down, but usually these people work their butt off. So if they work that much harder, then why should they have to be paying more tax than everyone else when they did the exact same thing? Everybody else had the exact same opportunity, but didn't do it. Like, yeah, Gary, I, I, I appreciate on everything you have except your job. That's the problem with socialists, right? Yeah, but I don't think. Okay, so I, I appreciate the call. Let me let me quick. I got so many calls. I don't think it's socialist to have a marginal tax rate. And let's just be clear: marginal tax rate means like like a, a marginal tax rate is not your average tax rate. Right. It's not like, oh, everybody pays 10 percent or 15 percent or 20 percent or 30 percent. Marginal tax rates, the tax rates go up as you hit certain uh, income thresholds. And I don't think anybody's saying, is anybody really mad that the richer you are, you pay slightly, you pay more tax than and there's a graduated marginal tax rate. I actually think that's fair. I don't think that's, quote, socialism. I think once you get over 50 percent, though, government's got to slow their roll. And I don't think they should be dinging you with other little dinky things. And I agree with you. I don't think they should start a class warfare, but I don't think class warfare is I don't think it's class warfare to have marginal tax rates that are fair. So on that, we disagree. Um, but uh, I do think on, what we do agree on is I don't think you should make anyone who's been successful look like they're, they're a bad person for it. The Canadian dream is to become successful, isn't it? Um, Peter in Toronto, I'm going to skip over. Um, I like your point here and I want to debate it. You say we're whining too much about government uh, overreach. Peter. Yeah, I totally, I totally feel that. We whine as Canadians. We're, we're living in one of the, we're privileged to live in one of the most freest countries in the world. Um, you know, government's set up to, to not only just uh, do regulations and, and laws and things, but also we, we hire good people and good leaders to give us good advice, things we don't want to hear all the time. And we need to take that into account. Yeah, I, let me just say one thing. Uh, I don't characterize anybody about whining. A democracy, the, the great part of our democracy is we can talk back to government. We should question. We should be skeptical, and their job should be to justify it and then get a mandate based on an election so people accept it. So I don't, I don't consider it whining. I consider it, you know, you want to impose a new restriction on me or take some of my money or take some of my civil liberties? Prove it, justify it, defend it. I don't think that's whining. And, and, and I think in the wake of COVID, I think we should be deeply conscientious about quote-unquote overreach because there has been a lot of restrictions on our civil liberties in an unprecedented way and governments have used that not only then but in the emergencies act that doesn't mean they're not all justified but i think we got to be super super vigilant and i don't think that's whining peter but i appreciate the call that we should also and to your point Let's not go crazy and compare this to Soviet Russia. And Peter, on this, I agree with you. The hyperbolic, like we're, you know, we live in a fascist state or we're, this is the, the, the road to communism. We're not even close. That's a di- and that diminishes people who actually lived under those brutal kind of regimes. So on that, Peter, 
Um, you're bang on. Daniel in Toronto as well. What's up? I got to go to Montreal, too. I got tons in Montreal. But Daniel. Yeah, hey, how are you? I'm awesome. Um, What's your take? Yeah, so I was listening to what you were saying about the sugar tax, and it reminded me what New York City tried to do a while back, where they tried to restrict the sizes of sodas and Slurpees you can buy. And they just everyone just laughed at them. Still didn't care. They just bought a second soda or, a, uh, you know, like a, like a second Slurpee. I don't think that extra 20 cents is going to stop people from buying a soda or a Slurpee or whatnot. You know, I mean... Yeah, but, but I, can like, I tell you something? So, so does a tax change behavior? Daniel, the truth is it does. And you got, you got to make sure you can't have it both ways. When the price of gas goes up, people drive less. When the price of cigarettes went up with a tax, a, a sin tax, smoking went down. Now, there's other consequences. People find other ways. The black market for cigarettes exploded. I get that. <clears throat> but price, sorry, I'm choking here. Price signals generally work. Like when you put a higher price on something, prices change behavior. My, so I, I actually think, you know, you want to tax sugar, people will stop drinking soda pop. My point is, but the unanticipated consequence is they're going to say to government, get the hell out of my Coke. Um, That's you, 100%. You know, I mean, I, I just think, you know, I, I just think that drugs can get laughed at and if people are going to trust them and you know, just like even less. I mean, it's, it's, it's such a petty thing, you know, like when New York City did it. People just thought they were crazy. You know. Yeah, and, and you're right. Like, this is my whole point of this part of the program, and I really appreciate the call in the last seconds I've got with you, which is governments should use their powers judiciously. I think we genuinely needed government help during the global pandemic. I don't think I need government help whether or not I should order a 7-Up. Back the 7-Up out, government. For now, anyway... All right, we got an awesome segment. You know I love muscle cars. Wait till you hear this about the discovery of an old treasure. Instant access to real people, real stories. The Evan Solomon Show is on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the big show, coast to coast to coast. You know, in the last number of weeks, I have done a number of stories about the end of the muscle car. Yo, no, no more chargers. They're going to stop producing them. We have bemoaned the lack of the, uh, the muscle car. People who like muscle cars love their cars. They are like, when you talk about who is your first girlfriend, who is your first boyfriend, when you ask someone that, they have a memory. When you ask someone who owned, let's say, a Pontiac GTO, what was your first great muscle car? They will talk about it like they lost their virginity. It is a moment they will never forget. And they will always look for that feeling again. So when, Noil, when Nolan Stoiko, who lives now in California, was 17, he bought a 1969 Pontiac GTO. He lived in Winnipeg and he loved that car, the first love of his life. And then he had to sell it when he moved to California and it was bought by another guy, Mel Bond, who lives in Winnipeg now, who's now the owner of the car, but they didn't know each other until now. Nolan and Mel join me now. Gents, 
This is my kind of story. How are you? Very good. I'm just How are fine. You, sir? I'm great. Okay, Nolan, you're 17. Talk about when you had your first love of the 69 Pontiac GTO. <laughs> yes, sir. So uh, back in when I lived in Winnipeg when I was 17, I had I was very fortunate, had the opportunity to, to uh, buy a car like that, which was the uh, dream car that I was uh, always infatuated with. I ended up buying that car, um, had it for a few years, uh, cherished it, loved it, um, didn't really realize what I had at that point at that time way back then how how important that car was but uh, ended up having to sell it to relocate to Southern California where I have lived ever since and just finished a very lengthy career as a sheriff's deputy down there Uh, just retired and decided to drive back up here to visit some friends and family and lo and behold I've always wondered what happened to that car and uh, I see it driving down the street in front of me about a week ago and Turns out Mel's driving it, and he's the owner of it. So I followed him home to his house and kind of stalked him, pulled in his driveway, and jumped out and said, hey, I think I used to own that car. And we uh, we started talking and kind of developed a friendship from there. So it was incredible, so, incredible so you, to see the car. You haven't seen the car since what, like 1970? Since uh, the day I sold it in, I think it was 1981, or right, so right, right around that time, yeah. So 1981, so you sell your 69 yeah. Pontiac GTO, in the peg, 1981. Mel, when you see a guy following you, by the way, an ex-cop, <laughs> and thanks for serving, uh, Nolan, you see a guy following you, you're like, oh boy, what do I got here? What was your reaction? Oh, it's not the first time. <laughs> I get a lot of people that were following me trying to tell me it's their car and everything else or just actually want to see it. So to me, when another guy starts following me, well, you know, a lot of guy, times the guys give up and they turn down the street. Well, this guy came right into my yard. Yeah, okay. You know, no big deal. And jumping out of the truck, are you still in that car? No, here we go again. You know, I've heard that before. And as soon as he said his name, I said, yep, you did. Why? Because you had the the, the ownership history? Yeah, I I had the ownership between him and the other few people that had the car between us. There were a few other guys that owned the car. But every time I'd go to a car show, his name would always pop up. Yeah, my buddy used to own this car. You know, and he'd say, yeah, there's Nolan Stoiko. He's, he lives in California. So I knew of him. I just didn't know, you know, were, never talked to him or anything because I've always wanted to know some of the history of these cars. Because my first car, too, was also a 69 GTO that I bought when I was 21. Holy so, I mean, they, And these things are getting pretty rare now to find, you know. So, I mean, you do find one, they want big bucks. <laughs> Well, but I just 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 on big. I just want people to to know uh, what you just said is is not uninteresting, right there, Mel, because there was a 1969 Pontiac GTO that I think about ten years ago sold for six hundred and twenty thousand bucks. Yeah, I know, but I blame Barrett Jackson for that. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> you know, they, they you can watch all these TV shows and everything kind of car guys going, "Hey, my car is worth that," and I'm sorry, no, it isn't. But yeah. you know, it's it's worth it's priceless to Nolan. You know, like if I could find my first GTO too, it'd be priceless for me to bring it home. You know, that's that's thing about cars. Like you said in the beginning, your first girlfriend. Well. I've also met a woman that said she had a boyfriend that used to own this car, too. She never gave me the name, but I don't want to go into specifics of what she told me. But you know. <laughs> now, 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 actually, to be honest, folks, the, you can probably get, pick one up for about, you know, 60,000, 50,000, 60,000 bucks. Yeah. But, yeah, but, cool, yeah. 
but but there but there this is not about the money, Nolan, is it? Like when you saw it no, and got to sit in it again, what not. was it like? What was it, it like it, for you? Well, I tell you what, it, uh, one of the highlights of my my life so far at this stage was to to find the car, to know that that it's it's loved and cherished like I loved and cherished it, and and to just see how it's taken care of, and then. I developed a friendship with Mel, um, and it's just incredible to to have found the car. I was never on a hunt for it, but I've always kept in touch with friends and family who have said over the years, hey, I've seen the car, I've seen the car, and I thought, boy, it would be nice to see that car one day, and I did. So it, it, it's amazing to have found it and to know that it still exists, it's still cherished. Um, yeah, would I love to uh, talk to Mel off the record and maybe uh, someday uh, – bring it back to, to to my house in california but no I, I think it's in it's it's good it's in a good home it's well loved cherished right. just as much as i i cherished it and the and the bottom line is evan after you said that to mel about the six hundred twenty thousand, i can't go that high to mel so <laughs> mel, you're not gonna get that much yeah i think <laughs> i might but i would tell you this mel um i'm glad nolan saw you driving it in the summer because the 1969 gto does not exist as if you're driving it in the winnipeg winter you got to keep that not off the salt no yeah, not, my first GTO, that was a that was a daily driver, winter, summer. You know, back then, cars were a dime a dozen. So they were daily drivers. Now, I was asked, do you take this in the winter? I said, no. first of all, I'd never get it started with, with the oil I got in there. And <laughs> if I did, I'd never go anywhere. No. You ever tried to drive a but but you, guys, you guys both love cars. You both collect cars. Um, and I got just a minute left. But the lovely thing about this is you guys became friends. Is that right, Nolan? And you and Mel are now kind of... This car yeah, has yeah, spawned, I, has spawned I, a friendship. Yes, absolutely, and and that was amazing to me to to meet a guy like Mel, so open, friendly, uh, like that. I could have pulled over, you know, being the career I just spent down in in, a, in an unsafe area that I worked. I could have pulled in behind him, and he could have been some uncooperative, unfriendly person that said, you know, get away from me. I don't want to talk to you. And I would have looked at my car and then said, okay, I finally saw it. And yeah, the story there. The but yeah, to, to be to meet a guy who was as receptive and friendly and. It was an incredible story. It's it's about the car. The car is the car is the yeah. story, and it, it's yeah. Well, and the friendship, and just real quick, Nolan, when when Mel finally threw you the keys and let you drive it, what was that like? You know what? <laughs> I've been through a lot in, in years. That's another story. I've had some highlights, and some pretty incredible stories, but I just about started crying. Yeah, that just that threw me for a loop where I just went, I don't know if I can even do this. Um, just because of the emotions, but I got through it. <laughs> you know, guys, Unfortunately, I, yeah. go ahead, Mel. The girl that he was with didn't get through it. She was bawling her eyes out when she came. Yeah. Well, <laughs> part I, of his history, too, when he was 17, and it was, it was really nice to see her that she appreciated that car was still around. That's great. Guys, you yeah. know, I know you say it's about the car, but it's about more than the car. It's about the memories. It's about the new friendships. Yeah. And Nolan Stoiko and Mel Bond, enjoy it. And and you know what? This is one of my favorite story of the day. Uh, cherish this friendship and cherish that card, gents. Thanks. We've got to go. We'll be right back. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network. And this is the Evan Solomon Show. Last night, uh, we sat down to watch Serena Williams. I love all sports. I love any great 
story in sports. And Serena Williams, is she the greatest athlete of all time? Is she the GOAT? 23 majors. She's been doing this since 1998. There was a stat two days ago, three days ago, when she won a match at the U.S. Open. And then 20 years earlier, Kevin Biggio and Bo Bichette's parents, both professional, their dads, both professional baseball players, each had a hit. 20 years later, she had, they both had a hit in the same night. She's still winning. Her longevity. And her match last night when she beat the number two in the world was remarkable. People going crazy. Tiger Woods is there. Spike Lee is there. Dionne Warwick is there. Celebrities everywhere. Why? Because she could be the greatest of all time. Now, you might say, wait a second. What about Roger Maris? He hit 61 home runs. By the way, Aaron Judge of the Yankees may catch him. Or Babe Ruth. Or Usain Bolt. Or Tom Brady. Or Wayne Gretzky. Or Pele. There's lots of great athletes. Michael Jordan. But is Serena the greatest of all time? one 1010 or 71010. And how do you define it? Look, in the end, it's impossible. There are great athletes who transcend. Tom Brady transcends. Michael Jordan transcends. Wayne Gretzky transcends. Roger Federer or Novak Djokovic or Rafa Nadal. Hard to pick those three. They transcend. Babe Ruth transcends. But you got to be great. Your skills got to be high. You've got to have longevity. You can't just do it for two seasons. You've got to do it for 20. Bobby Orr was maybe the greatest defenseman of all time. But his career was sadly cut too short. Wayne had a long career. Who's the greatest of all time and what are the criteria? One eight five five six three three ten ten or seven ten ten. Now, last night when Serena beat the second best player in the world, Annette Conovit, from Estonia, it was like bonkers. She wasn't expected to win. And she was playing, you know, it was like when Tiger Woods won the Masters. That late Masters that kind of solidified him. Or Roger Federer won the Australian Open, that remarkable run. Or Tom Brady winning a Super Bowl with Tampa. Like, these remarkable late careers. They've already had a great career. They've already had a great early career. They've already had a great middle career. Lionel Messi. Maybe he's one of the greats. I will say this. I'm not asking who or Cristiano Ronaldo. Someone's texting me at 71010 or 1-855-633-1010. What is the criteria? I think you need both to be... The greatest champion in your sport. You've got to be able to do it for a long time. You have got to, look, in my view, maybe Muhammad Ali is the greatest. But Serena on so many levels. And by the way, some people don't like Serena. She can be polarizing. I'm not talking about that. Like last night, she wasn't very generous about her competitor. Often they'll say, I just think, uh, you know... um, My competitor played really well. She never even mentioned the number two in the world. 
She didn't, Annette Conovich's name never even came up. She didn't say, you know, Annette played great today, but I just, uh, I was really happy. She just says, I'm Serena. This is what I do. That, that rubs some people wrong. But think about where Serena, like, think about, did you see the movie King Richard where she and Venus, they come from a very difficult background in what was and remains a white sport. They've broken remarkable barriers. I mean, they're, they're from Compton. This is unheard of. And they win unprecedented numbers. Like, it's unbelievable. And then she's been through injuries. And she's done it for more than two decades. Evan, she's the GOAT. All others play on teams. She stands alone. Seriously, Evan, of, of all time, the space between her and Steffi Graf is one major. Don't go crazy. Steffi retired. Oh, this is a great point. And this is why I... When you call someone the GOAT, it's like you're secretly denigrating someone else. Whoever wrote me that on Steffi, you're right. Steffi Graf, remarkable. Remarkable. But she retired. She had a shorter career. I think there's something to be said for enduring. The endurance level. Throwing it down for this long may put Serena past Steffi. Not just because she has more one more major. Uh, Peter in Laval, Quebec. What's up, Pete? I think Michael Jordan was uh, one of the best. Uh, but, uh, you know, we tend to forget about how good Sidney Crosby was. He was, obviously, but he's there, um, you know, with, with some of his accomplishments. And uh, and also Rob Wardell um, that won the Scottish Championship last week. And unfortunately, uh, he passed away at 37 two days after he won. But but he was great, too. And, you know, um, Evan, you should maybe do a, 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 a day of call call in where we talk about and uh, we give recognition to all the athletes that have died the last two years from sudden heart attacks after taking the jab we should see uh, what's going on with that because there's a lot that continue dying suddenly and unexpectedly especially healthy fit athletes that are at the prime of their life and uh, that'd be a good topic to talk about we should yeah. give condolences to them also yeah uh, first of all on uh, i don't i think there's a difference between great athletes sid the kid's great and and, and being the best of all time i, I don't think he's he, he's ranked there um, sudden cardiac arrest in athletes. Um, um, 1,500% yeah, yeah. increase in two years after taking Yeah, I, I appreciate that. 1,500%. But before you, yeah, and, and thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Um, here's the problem with your theory. Um, sudden cardiac arrest in athletes um, has been very common. And it's, it's been one of the highest cause of death. There's a study in 2016 that you may want to, in the Cardiovascular Journal, on sudden cardiac arrest, uh, cardiac deaths in athletes. In other words, this notion that you're linking it to the jab, which, by the way, there is no proof of that, that athletes dying because they got, uh, in some way, this um, vaccine, there's no proof of that. But if you go back to 2016 and way before the sudden death among athletes from cardiac events, right, is the most frequent medical cause of sudden death in athletes, and estimates vary. So this was long before the pandemic. So be careful making these associations. Andy in Toronto. Hey. Hi, Evan. How are you? I'm awesome. What's up? Uh, great. I'm going to focus a little bit on boxing because there's a couple of boxers I, I think about. Uh, one that I don't think gets the respect that he deserves is Rocky Marciano. And, and you, the guy just didn't lose. And people can go level of competition, but people punish him because 
his competition wasn't as good, but he still never lost. Yeah. So h- how can you critique a guy who never lost? Same goes for Floyd, Floyd Mayweather in, in today's era. He never lost. I don't like the guy, but he never lost. So you can't argue with the fact of their greatness when they haven't been beaten. Rocky Marciano, heavyweight title, 52 to 56, by the way, I love boxing. He, he uh, finished undefeated. You're right. And, and you know, Rocky Marciano, I, 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 even Muhammad Ali obviously was defeated, but I would even say arguably he might be the greatest. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. I, 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 would I put him as the greatest of all time? He's certainly among the pantheon of greats, though. I love that. Uh, I've got like, do I have a minute? How long do I have here? Uh, I got 30 seconds. I got so many people. Evan, don't forget Muhammad Ali um, is um, I've got so many. Tom Brady is the goat. Football season is back next Thursday. Uh, Yeah, we know NFL. uh, Okay. I like that. Uh, Someone says Randy Couture, Joel MMA. I actually interviewed Randy Couture before he retired uh, in Las Vegas. I wouldn't say he's one of the goats, but he's a great fighter. Um, And a lot of Michael Jordan, Tom Brady. I will say this. That's all true. But, Watch Serena Williams as she gets into the third and fourth round. She's the GOAT. Authentic voices, real conversations. This is the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the big show. Lots coming up. Our friend Dan Riskin is going to be here. Riskin it all with Dan Riskin, our favorite Thursday moment. But Ontario's top doctor, Dr. Kieran Moore, said yesterday that more guidance has changed on COVID-19 And he said precautions taken with COVID should be applied to all respiratory illnesses. So get this. Listen to this. So we need uh, to have an approach that will decrease the transmission of RSV, influenza, and COVID. So the guidance is, and it should be clear, stay at home when you're sick. You should not go back uh, to the school or work environment uh, until your symptoms are resolving and improving for at least 24 hours. If you have a fever, you can't or should not go back to, uh, to school or work until that fever has resolved. Okay, so, you know, you're sick, stay home, that seems smart. But let's say you test positive for COVID-19. You got one of those uh, rapid tests. And he said, look, um, you don't even have to take the five days off. You don't have to isolate for five days. What about a mask? Well, listen to what he said. So this is an all uh, respiratory virus approach because uh, the complexity will be increasing this year given uh, that uh, other respiratory viruses will be circulating in our schools. So, so is it smart to say that there's no more isolation for after you get COVID? Let, let, let's. What's going on here? And then you got universities are saying you got to wear masks and you got to isolate. Doctor Christopher Labos is a physician and a medical writer with a degree in epidemiology. He's also a cardiologist and he joins us now. Doc, thanks for your work. Um, what do you make of the new protocols? The uh, the precautions. You have COVID. You don't have to isolate for five days. Uh, well, somewhat confusing because on the one hand, I mean, the sort of the headline is you don't have to isolate anymore. And then you get into the details of what he actually said. And he actually sort of says, well, you do have to isolate. If you're sick, stay home. 
And, uh, you know, it's the old journalism uh, uh, advice of don't bury the lead because most people don't read past the first paragraph of the story. So most people are going to take away from this. Well, I don't have to isolate if I have COVID anymore, right? I can go about and do my business. Whereas that's actually not what he's saying. What he's saying is if you're sick, stay home. They've just removed the five-day mandate and are going with this more flexible but in my mind, slightly more confusing approach. You have to remember is that sometimes when you're dealing with public health, sometimes clear, concise messaging is best. And it's like, listen, you have COVID, stay home for five days. Uh, That at least is clear. This way is going to be a lot more complicated for people. And I worry that a lot of people are going to interpret this to me like, well, if I have COVID, I can just go go to work and do whatever. And that's going to lead to more spread of the virus, frankly. Well, well, is it just saying, look, you, some people test positive and they feel fine. They're like, don't ISA. I've tested positive. I don't have a fever. I'm going yeah. to work. Isn't that what he's saying? Well, that's essentially what he's saying. But I don't think that's the right approach because here's the thing. Symptoms are subjective. I mean, how many times has somebody, quote unquote, powered through a cold and, and you know, come to work and then gotten everybody else in the office sick? So, you know, how... The problem is this, is that, yes, there are some people that are asymptomatic, but there are some people that are what we call posse-symptomatic or very minimally symptomatic. So they do have symptoms. They may have a very mild fever, but they may not realize it because they don't own a thermometer. I mean, a lot of people don't own thermometers. Uh, so a lot of people may not check to see if they have a fever. A lot of people may feel a little bit unwell, but, you know, will be like, well, it's not that bad. Let me go into work anyways. And that's what we sort of have to be careful about because whether it comes to the cold, the flu, or COVID, if you are infectious, you will infect other people. And in an era where the internet exists, I don't know why you wouldn't want to work from home if for no other reason than to spare your colleagues because nobody's going to thank you if you go into the office and make everybody sick. Right. You're just causing more disruptions in everybody else's life or because you don't want to break your, your routine. Like, I don't see what the advantage is. So you, you think this is not this is reckless. You think this is a mixed message and the wrong approach? Well, it's not going to help anything, right? This is not going to make the situation better. It's not going to help control COVID. All it's doing, even by the most charitable interpretations, is that it's reflecting the reality, which is that people are not taking COVID seriously anymore. And then it comes to the question, like, what is the role of public health? Is the role of public health to mirror people's practice? Or is the role of public health to, to... prescribe an ideal that people strive towards. And and I would argue for the second approach. It's like, yeah, people are not always going to follow the rules. You can put a mask mandate in place and not everybody's going to wear a mask. That's the reality of the human condition. But I don't think it's public, the role of the public health department, whether you want to talk about Health Canada in Canada or the FDA or the CDC in the US, I don't think it's the responsibility to sort of compromise to the way people actually behave. I think there is a role for being like, no, this is what the ideal is. And we'll never reach it. We'll never be perfect. We'll never achieve 100% vaccination rate. But we should still strive to that ideal and give people at least good scientific advice, which is, if you don't want to spread a virus, right. any virus to other people, don't come into contact but with he, other people. Now, now, Dr. Moore is saying, Dr. Lovers, that, that, you know, don't isolate, but wear a mask in any setting for 10 full days at the start of your symptoms, even if you feel better. Like, to me, it's like, how? wait, you, can, you don't have to isolate. It's not so bad, but now you're going to but wear a mask. It, it does seem that that pretty weak to say that, right? Like, well, why should I wear a mask right. if I can go to work? Yeah, exactly. That's what makes it confusing. And this is the thing. Most people are not going to get into the nitty gritty of what he actually said. They're just going to take away the headline. The headline was don't isolate anymore. And they're going to be like, okay, you know, back to normal. And that's, I think, the danger. It's it's the complacency that comes from 
you know, softening guidelines to the point where people just stop paying attention. Okay, uh, since I've got you here, Dr. Christopher Labos, since you are an epidemiologist and a cardiologist, I had a, a call. We were, we were, and you can also weigh in on this because you're just uh, uh, a, a regular person as well. Who's the greatest athlete of all time? So, you know, Serena Williams playing in the um, U.S. Open. Yeah, arguably she's the greatest of all time. So I get a caller calling in, which I love to do. Mm-hmm. said, Evan, you should do a story on um, why high-performance athletes have all died because of cardiac arrest due to the vaccine, sudden cardiac death. And I said, look, sudden cardiac death in athletes has long been studied long before the um, pandemic. But I said, look, I'll talk to a doctor and I've got you. Is there any link at all? Because it's all over social media that, oh, high performance athletes are dying after they took the jab. Is there any link at all to the vaccine and athletes dying from cardiac deaths? Or is this completely fabricated? No, there's no link whatsoever. I mean, this is something that's been like bouncing around the internet for a while. I don't really know what its origins are. It probably started with, you know, the whole discussion about myocarditis and sort of, it just sort of, you know, like a game of broken telephone evolved from there. But all the cases of myocarditis or the vast majority were mild and they weren't in athletes. They were just in regular people. Uh, You know, as you correctly pointed out, sudden death in athletes is a real thing, but it's due to a condition called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. In most cases where athletes are born with a genetic condition that thickens the muscle of the heart, which predisposes them to arrhythmias. It has nothing to do with the vaccines. And this this thing of, you know, athletes dying all over the place is more one of these internet uh, hopes. Is that right? Because people say, no, these doctors are wrong. There's been a spike in the number of athletes that have died is that that's also there's no i'm just i look there's no evidence of this is there that there's any link to the vaccine no and i mean i mean i've had people email me this and like okay i'm like okay give me the names of these athletes who have died and then that's usually where the conversation ends like you know if there were like hundreds or thousands of, of young athletes dying uh, there would be a list of that somewhere. Uh, and I mean, I, I haven't seen that. So this is just one of those things. It's one of those things where, you know, you start with one story, which is the myocarditis risk after vaccinations when the first and second doses were too close. And it just sort of evolves from there. And it becomes a talking point that people use when they want to sort of argue against vaccination. And that's what it, it essentially comes down to. Okay, so folks, I, again, you know, you, you bring up a point. Here we've got Dr. Christopher Labos, the uh, physician, medical writer, epidemiologist, and cardiologist uh one of you brought up the things there's a spike of athletes that have died from sudden cardiac arrest because of the vaccine conclusion from an actual cardiologist and epidemiologist no link there you have it we're checking it out uh, doc i appreciate your work and 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 the information is important because we need good information to make good decisions so i appreciate it sir my pleasure you take care yeah thank you for all your hard work look you know me on this show. You raise an issue, we'll, we'll check it out. You're not looking for me to be a cardiologist on it. Here's a guy who went to medical school, and he's saying the theory is bogus. Lots more to come on the show. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Holding the politicians and pundits to account. Now more from the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. It is an explosive allegation. And we're trying to get to the bottom of it, if it's true or not. 
There's a new book by a UK writer named Richard Kerbage called The Secret History of the Five Eyes. Now, what are the Five Eyes? The Five Eyes are Canada, the United States, the UK, Australia, and New Zealand. They are known as the Five Eyes because they share intelligence secrets. So intelligence sharing among the Five Eyes, kind of a big deal. And the secret history of the Five Eyes, Kerbage claims, it's a, I think the book is published today, we're trying to reach him and we couldn't today, that CSIS, the Canadian Security and Intelligence Service, smuggled, had an informant tell the Canadians that CSIS took a 15-year-old girl named Shamima Begum and her two school friends who were 16 and 15 and smuggled them into northern Syria and in order to become essentially agents for them. Now, Justin Trudeau was asked about this, and he said, well, the fight against terrorism requires our intelligence service to continue to be flexible and creative in their approaches, but every step of the way they're bound by strict rules and principles that values Canadians hold dear, including the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, And he said there are rigorous oversight mechanisms regarding how the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarian, uh, they oversee that. But apparently, with their British counterparts, this happened. I'm going to bring in Move and Shake. He knows this way better. Now, now we've, by the way, contacted a lot of former CSIS heads. Uh, Nobody will comment on this yet. Uh, former counterterrorism operative and professor at public safety at Seneca College, Mubin Sheikh will. Now, remember, he, Mubin, was deeply involved as an undercover agent, so maybe no one in the country knows this stuff better than you. Mubin, uh, first of all, how are you? How are things? It's been a long time. Uh, how's the summer? Everything good? Yeah, everything is good. Thanks for having me. I had the uh, opportunity after two years of COVID to go camping at uh, Algonquin Park. Um, uh, so, uh, things are good. Things are Where'd good. Where'd you go? Where'd you go? Just give it, give it to me. I'm a, you know me, I'm a I'm inveterate camper. Uh, well, yeah, I went to Tea Lake. Uh, it's it was one of the, uh, one of the smaller places, you know, everything else was booked, of course. And now I've learned, uh, you know, to wait, uh, for the booking to open so that I can get a better place next time. But it, it was great. Uh, got out on the water, saw the stars. I mean, it was it was great. I encourage people to to do that as much as you can. Oh, we get great. trapped up in all the news that's going on in the world, a lot of anxiety, stress, controversy. It's important for for everyone to take time out, you know, and and decompress. So yeah, I'm I've, ta- I've taken yeah. You get on Smoke Lake there, Tea Lake. I know that area very well. Nice. So you used to take my kids there. Uh, my kids now sir, Canoe Lake. Of course, you can paddle right into Tea Lake from Canoe Lake. Canoe Lake's the put in. Yeah. Uh, where you, where you get there. But, uh, yeah, one of my kids is now, uh, he just got back from a 52 day canoe trip in the Arctic, 52 days. Wow. Wow. Crazy. Ending up in the Arctic Ocean. What do you make of this CSIS story? Like, can you tell us, explain what the hell they're actually saying here? It's hard for people to understand what the allegation that CSIS has actually done here by smuggling informants into like girls, underage girls into Syria. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, shocking is uh, intelligence agencies collect intelligence. And they do so by the use of undercovers. In fact, undercover operations is how we do this stuff. Whether it's a biker gang or a mafia group or a child sex predator sting, 
the use of undercovers is a basic component of all of this. So what people are trying to do, I think, in, in sensationalizing this is to say, you know, framing it as, oh, look, CSIS is trafficking young girls. I mean, I mean, it's ridiculous. It is ridiculous to frame it that way. The reality is, is that the girl, the spy did not radicalize the girls. He didn't recruit the girls. He didn't drive them to the airport. What ended up happening is the networks that those girls were using happened to be infiltrated. And that's what happened. So whether so, what does that uh, mean? So tell me what that means. Yeah. These are fifteen-year-old girls. So, so who are the sure. girls, and how? What do you mean by that? I don't understand. Yeah. So there were. It was a big case in the in the UK because there were these three young girls, high school girls, uh, fifteen, sixteen years old, who absconded from the UK and went to join ISIS. Now, you know, I was monitoring ISIS networks from 2012 to 2018. Uh, we, I know the, the tactics very well. What, what ISIS was doing was encouraging young people to leave their families in secret and join them in, in, their, in their territory. They told these young people, you know, uh, not to be obvious about it. They taught these young people how to hide their activities from the parents, from law enforcement, from intelligence agencies, um, and told them what routes to take, where to go, what cafe to show up where, you know, the smuggler would meet them. And, and you know, this was a network, this smuggling network. There were thousands of people that were trafficked or that were smuggled. Trafficking is not the right word. Trafficking relates to moving people from one place to another against their will. Uh, smuggling would be the better term, right? This, was, this really, was an underground recruitment operation of yeah, terror. That's right. That's right. And and ISIS was doing this across the across you know the West and the Middle East. I mean, at most about five thousand Westerners went to join ISIS, uh, so they could have ended up in any one of those smuggling groups. Uh, so so so, so what? So they so yeah. What happens when they get to Shamima Begum, a fifteen-year-old, and her two friends? Yeah. Well, she's not the only. Uh, I mean, the three of them are not the only fifteen-year-olds who went. Um, you know, there were many other young people who went, um, you know, not just from the UK, but from some other countries as well. Uh, and they were, you know, they were recruited and radicalized through the ISIS networks. And, uh, like I said, you know, they, the, the, the routes that, you know, they gave these people what routes to take, what to say, even if you're questioned by immigration officials, they told a lot of these girls, and then you can see in the photos, you know, don't even wear a hijab. Don't make it look like you're overtly religious. You know, just wait till you get to the other side, and then you know, and then you can play the role. Uh, so it's it's not it's not controversial to me because obviously this is how undercover operations work. It just so happened that the networks that these three girls in particular used was infiltrated by one of our agents, uh, one of our assets, if you will. Right. He he's currently in a Turkish prison, so he's you know. He's a write-off in that sense, but, uh, you know, it, it could have been anybody else. I mean, they could have fallen into... Uh, but, but they're you know, saying they facilitate, like, by the way, this fifth, she was then 15, she now is in northern Syria in a detention camp that her two friends are dead, but her lawyer is essentially, and I know told CBC's As It Happens, that his client was human traffic, that they helped her lose her citizenship, and that's, that's not intelligence, that's trafficking. Oh, that's that's incorrect. And you got to keep in mind that the, you know, Shamima's story has been, I mean, they're really, the lawyers and all the people that are supporting her 
are trying to throw everything they can at the wall to see what sticks. So currently it's, oh, CSIS made me do it, so I'm not responsible. And that's ridiculous, okay? I mean, and, and even again, back to this idea of this is the role, this is what the undercover does. I mean, it just, like I said, it just so happened that the networks that they were using were infiltrated. There were, I mean, the exact same network, uh, there, are, there were hundreds of other smugglers who were involved. They weren't undercovers, right? The role of the undercover is to play the role of the, right. the bad guy. So it's not a question of, oh, what was the undercover supposed to do? His job is to be doing all that stuff and then passing up the information that they've collected. Uh, yeah, otherwise, otherwise you can't do it. He can't. Otherwise you can't do it. Otherwise we get no information, we get no intelligence, no evidence. I mean, do we just sit back and do nothing? I mean, it's, 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 it doesn't make sense. I mean, even if you apply the analogy to a biker group, you know, uh, an undercover who's in a biker group, what are you going to tell him? You can't sell drugs? What are you going to tell them? You can't. Well, can you? Know, you get can, 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 yeah, well, but that, well, moving on, I'm just about out of time. But so this is interesting. You're saying that this is bogus and this is, this is literally intelligence level 101. And this is someone who's trying to get out of a detention camp. Um, we're going to, we're going to keep covering this story. Hey, uh, we'll follow this story. I really, first of all, thanks again for your work doing what you gave with your life undercover. Move and shake, former counterterrorism operative and now professor of public safety at Seneca. You're the best, Moving. I love having you on. Thanks for that perspective. Bringing the story to life. It's Evan Solomon on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. I was up at 3 o'clock in the morning because I never sleep, and I thought, who can tell me about sleep? Maybe it's making me more selfish. That's what I hear. I didn't realize that. I don't really want to give away all the time on my radio show to this guy, but I just want to guard it all for myself. Maybe, but that's the sleep talking. Maybe I should just give some time to Riskin it all with Dan Riskin. It's good for you overall. Yeah, this is great. This is, it's a dream, man. The headline is Risking It All. Yeah, I think that's where we're going with this. With Dan Riskin. I mean, I didn't know the fact that I can't sleep might make me selfish, but here I am with my pal Dan Riskin, who I, who I love and I respect, and now I'm going to find out that maybe I'm like a real selfish, greedy guts because I can't sleep. What is going on here, Dan? Or maybe you'd be like, maybe you're really great and you'd be even nicer if you just get a good night's sleep. Maybe that's what it is. You know what? That, thank you, honey. Oh, I thought you were my wife for a second. I thought, because that's a conversation I've had. Yeah, it's, this is one, I remember, so I have twins and when they were babies, I was not my best self. And I was co-host of Daily Planet at the time. And I would work with Zaitong. And so we spent these long days together. And I just like, I, I there were days where I'd come home at the end of the day and be like, why was I just like that? You know, like, it just wasn't my nicest self. She was wonderful all the time, of course. You, you were but a I, jerk? I, yeah, well, sometimes I just would be snappy or I'd, you know, we'd have really? to do another take. And I'd be like, another take. Rah, 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 okay, like, can I, I can just, before we start, hold on. I, because you're so genial. Not to mention yeah. smart and handsome. I'm buttering you up here. Can you yeah. give me a, a reenactment as if I'm your former co-host on Daily Planet? What would a kind of snarky, snappy Dan Riskin sound like? So give me a sense. Like, okay, uh, can we do that one more time, Dan? 
I'm more of a brooding, angry, just okay, let's just do this kind of guy. You oh, know, really? Like, okay. Yeah. I'm not, but like here we are highlighting my worst self. But I what this is my excuse now is that I had baby twins at home and I was right. getting like zero sleep, right. like no sleep. Like they wake up at different times. Oh, it's just pure hell. It's it's I <laughs> I don't miss those days of lack of sleep at all. I do not do well without proper sleep. What Is about that you? Right? you? You don't sleep well? To, uh, I'm a now, terrible sleeper. Know. I'm a terrible sleeper. In fact, the other night I needed to sleep so because I was taking my, my kids away. I hadn't slept in so long for all sorts of reasons that I tried the CBD sleep uh, thing. Oh, here we go. And I tried it. Um, so I did the, uh, what's it called? Um like the liquid CBD. So Under the I, tongue? Is that what you do? Well, I just right in your mouth. You just go, you take a like a vial of it. I just squirt it in your mouth. And okay. I did two, you know, whatever. And I, it doesn't have like a lot of THC, but I nonetheless, I slept pretty well. But when I woke up, I was, I felt stoned. I felt groggy. Uh. It was not my jam. Yeah, that's it's it's sleep is a very delicate thing. And like, you got to find what works for you. But this latest study, which I should I should reveal before I just make this all anecdotal about me back in 2014, when I had twins. um, This latest study looks at three different aspects of what, uh, what happens when people don't get enough sleep. So the first one, they had 24 people for the study. And on one, so it was random whether they did the sleepless night or the sleep night uh, first, but they had a night where they had to stay up all night. And then the next day, they answered questions questions in a questionnaire while the brain was getting scanned or they did the other one which was to be to get a good night's sleep and then come in and answer those questions and they just compared the same person whether they got sleep or not and when they did that they found that 78 percent of people decrease their desire to help others when they're affected by sleep loss and that is true whether 78 percent of them had a had a significant change wow. in how generous they were answering survey questions like if somebody came and asked for 10 bucks blah 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 if somebody right. on the street la da da but this was true when they asked questions about strangers asking for help or money or whatever but it was also true like if your partner or if a sibling or if someone in your house needed la da da same thing, a, a significant change to make. So individuals not getting enough sleep become a worse version of themselves. But that's just one of the three studies. In another study, they had people keep a sleep journal over four days and then answer questionnaires each day. And they found correlations between how much sleep they were getting and how generous they were in their answers on the on the survey. So th- there they're not manipulating how much sleep you get. It's just the, the tides of how much sleep a person gets naturally are affecting them in their daily lives. And then the third one, is I think maybe the most interesting. They looked at daylight savings time and they looked at charitable donations across the United States. And they found that every time there's a daylight savings and everybody's tired, the donations drop by 10%. Wow. Across the U.S. See, I thought I was just cheap, but now it turns out I'm just tired. <laughs> another ten percent, <laughs> not just ten percent, but another ten percent wow. beyond beyond That's what everybody's you know already being tight wadded about. So it's it's interesting. Three different ways to, that all sort of highlight the same thing: that when you don't get enough sleep, you become less pro-social. And of course, you know, like in terms of relationships and how we get along with others and and who we are in society and how society functions, it's all really hinged on pro-social, doing things for the common good, helping each other out, lending a hand, uh, looking out for one another. We certainly, having just gone through COVID-19, did a lot of that, a lot of thinking on that, on those terms. And when you think about how much 
sleep matters and you think about how hard it is to get a good night's sleep, especially for people like teenagers who need more sleep but are getting up early for school. Right. Um, you know, there's all kinds of ways that society is sort of kicking itself and not making it not the society could be better if we focus more on getting people a good night's sleep because people would, it turns out, be even more kind to hmm. one another. That is so remarkable. And and that first of all, it's not like fifty one percent. You're talking about seventy eight percent helping. Yeah. And then the charitable donations thing is also significant on daylight savings. You know, I actually phoned my my doctor said, "Why don't you get? A, I'll recommend a sleep study for you." This is just like two weeks ago. I thought, okay, it's you know the summer. But then they said, okay, well, we can do it in September, and it's four hours, and it goes from 10 in the morning, we do one session, till Mm. one in the afternoon, and then, like, three in the afternoon. I'm like, I don't have six days. I work in that time. They're like, okay, well, like I just thought a sleep study would be done at night. This was in the day, so I couldn't do it. So I (laughs) don't understand that. Yeah, I mean they, they got to get their data. It's it's hard. I mean that's that's one of the the problems, and I think that's what's nice about the second study in this one is that the, instead of having people pull an all nighter, which honestly for a lot of people that's not really feasible, right? Like I I can't just suddenly pull an all nighter and then try to make up for it the rest of the week, and you know they've got young kids at home and all that stuff. But where they had people just keeping a journal and keeping track of their sleep, it was different. So there may be a there may be a study out there for you, or there might be conclusions from those studies that you can take to the bank. But um, yeah, I, I can totally I can totally that, that is very interesting, and yeah. You'd think it up in like a crisis, like a wartime, when you know people. Oh yeah. Are, I, I, yet people do have remarkable acts of of generosity, but maybe societies are even less generous there under that sleepless stress. Yeah, some people think that the invention of the light bulb was like the worst thing that happened to us because we all started getting not enough sleep. It's it's an interesting idea. I mean, it used to be that it got dark. You had a candle. Okay, what are you going to do with a candle? Like you could light a bunch of candles, I guess. But it's it's just not like now where you're staring at a screen until who anytime you can stay, go stay yeah, up right, right through the night. Doesn't matter. And and the light bulb was really the turn that made it possible to work longer hours, to work into the evening, to do a night shift. All these things, all these industries be, made it much easier for people hmm. to work funny hours. And so well, some people, I, I there was I remember when I did my PhD, there was a guy in psychology, and I can't remember his name now, but he wrote a whole book about how sleep, the lack of sleep was like the biggest problem wow. society faced. He it really it is a big it. one. And and that's why, Dan, um, thank you for today. I'm going to go get the Screw You Thomas Edison t-shirts and we can wear those. <laughs> maybe the Screw You Edison pajamas. Should we do that? I like it. Screw like You it. Edison, the flannel PJs to get you to a nice sleep. Uh, that's Dan Riskin. Uh, you are so generous with your time. You must have had a good sleep. Uh, I did last night. You're the best. Thanks, man. Thanks. Talk to you all tomorrow.